Good morning. My name is Tommy Allen, and welcome to the virtual presence of New Hope Presbyterian Church in Kent, Washington. And this is the first Sunday of Advent. What does that mean? If you're not familiar with Advent, basically Advent um, is a time of the church calendar of the year where we celebrate the coming of Jesus in the past, um, his coming in the future, and his coming into our lives right now. And we anticipate um, those things. Um, in a lot of places, you might just hear talked about as Christmas. Either way, that's where we are today. I pray you had a good Thanksgiving. We had a good Thanksgiving. Watched Muppet Christmas Carol, of course, and so we are ready to head into the holidays. By now, you've figured out we're not meeting in person today, but it is what it is. We definitely will be meeting in person on Christmas Eve, and so I look forward to seeing as many of you who are comfortable with making it and who want to come out on Christmas Eve. So with all of that said, typically during Advent, we would have an Advent reading um, from the church lectionary and we would light a candle. You see, I've already lit the candle behind me. Thank you to Judy Allen for the decorations this morning. And so I thought I would read from the New Testament reading of, for Advent Sunday number one. And so this is from 1 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 9. So hear the word of God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen and amen. Why don't I open us with prayer this morning? Father, I do pray that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would um, use your word to sanctify us and to grow us in faith. I pray for myself that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name, we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. Well, we are at sermon number 20 in this series of the Jesus Storybook Bible. Last week, Samuel talked about Daniel and the scary sleepover. Will Daniel get eaten by the lions? He doesn't. This week, we talk about Jonah being swallowed by a fish. He does get swallowed. What's going to happen there? However, before we jump into this text about Jonah, I thought I would start with a question um, that really, I think, challenges our presuppositions, or it should you see, most of the time, if you ask people, oh, what's the story of Jonah and the whale about? And they would say, oh, this guy gets swallowed by a fish and he gets vomited on the shore and Nineveh repents. All is true. But the real question is what's behind it. So let me, let me ask you this question. Which is harder for you to believe of two things? Is it harder for you to believe that a man could be swallowed by a whale or a great fish um, live for three days and then be vomited on the beach somewhere, or that God would be willing to forgive your worst enemies. Notice I said your worst enemies, not his worst enemies. I want you to think about the person or people who have done you the most harm in your life, who have caused you the most pain. And would it be easier for you to, to believe that a man could be swallowed by a fish and live or that God could forgive those people? People have done that to you. That really, the second question, is what Jonah is about. 
right? Are you okay? Am I okay? Is Jonah okay with the fact that God loves not only his enemies, but God loves our enemies? That God shows grace not only to his enemies, but God shows grace to our enemies. And so just by way of background a little bit, Jonah takes place in the 8th century BC. We know there was a prophet Jonah, not just from this book, but in 2 Kings chapter 14, um, we see Jonah, the son of Amittai, is a prophet to King Jeroboam II, who was a successful king in the northern kingdom, but he was also a wicked king in the evil kingdom. And it's interesting because Jonah, on one hand, gives him a sort of successful, you're going to be a prosperous king, you're going to win. Um, and Amos comes behind and changes it on him. So Jonah, you know, he might have a little bitterness going on. This book would say he has a lot of bitterness going on. We're going to look at the whole thing this morning, as a matter of fact. Jonah only has 48 verses. We're going to skip most of chapter 2. And basically, um, one thing to keep in mind as we look at this book is that Nineveh is the capital at the time of the Assyrian kingdom. And Assyria was this menacing superpower in the life of Israel, that they were just sort of a constant threat. Um, and, and in fact, they would carry Israel into exile in uh, 722 BC. And so if you would have mentioned Assyria in polite company in Israel in the 8th century, people would have, you know, cringed because um, in the words of Miss Piggy, um, they, were, they were odious and wicked and poorly dressed, right? They were bad. They were just bad people, at least according to Israel and relative to Israel. And so um, that's whom jo Jonah is called to preach to. And um, Basically, also the other, other thing before we jump into the text that you need to keep in mind is Jonah is the only prophet for whom um, a book is given that, that we actually don't have his words, but we have his life. In, in other words, when you think of Isaiah, really what you're thinking of are the words of Isaiah that were given to him or that he's preached or that he spoke. Or if you think of Jeremiah or Ezekiel, you're getting recordings of what they saw, their visions or what they heard. And Jonah, you're not getting that. What you're getting is a picture of his life. His very life is the object lesson. His life is this prophetic book that we are reading. And from it, we will learn quite a bit. We're going to look at three things today. We're going to look at a tale of two butts. That's B-U-T. Um, a tale of two butts. Um, we're going to look at predictable repentance. Notice I said predictable. We're going to look at unpredictable repentance and predictable repentance. But what I want you to keep in mind is the predictable repentance. And then finally, we're going we're gonna to ask and answer an existential question. At the end of Jonah, God asks Jonah three big questions, but all of those questions taken together really form one big existential question that we have to answer. So with all of that said, a tale of two butts. The reason I call it that is because if you read through the first chapter of Jonah, what you hear is this tale of two butts, but Jonah, but God, but Jonah, but God, but Jonah, but God. And so I'm just going to jump right in. So starting at verse one, it says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. 
Okay. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. He says, I want you, Jonah, who are now, who's now in Israel. Um, in fact, Jonah lived very near to Galilee. He said, I want you, Jonah, to go to Nineveh, which Nineveh would have been about 500 miles east for Jonah over land. And so what does Jonah do? Jonah goes down to Joppa, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean, and buys a ticket to Tarshish, which is about a thousand miles west, literally in the opposite direction. So Jonah, um, he's not too concerned about obedience at this point. He has gotten this word of the Lord, right? He had one job. He's a prophet. Just do what God says. Tell people what I told you. Tell them. Instead, he gets on a boat and takes off. And you notice the but. It said God told him to, to go preach to Nineveh, and it says, but Jonah. Now, verse four, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down to fat and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you, will give a thought to us so that we may not perish. So what's happening here? So Jonah is on this ship and suddenly God hurls this great wind upon the sea, this great tempest. And the mariners were so afraid that each started crying out to his God. Notice that each mariner, we don't know how many there were, had his own God that he was calling out to. Maybe someone was calling out to Dagon. Interestingly enough, Nineveh, the god of Nineveh, was Dagon, who was a fish god. Think about that when a fish, a guy gets spit out of a fish and goes to preach to them. But nonetheless, maybe some were calling out to Baal, maybe some were coming out to, to you know, Ashtar, who, whatever the gods are, and nothing is working. But Jonah has gone down into the inner part of the ship and is laid down and was fast asleep. Now this, this story echoes, it should have some echoes of Jesus calming the sea, right? The sea, there's, there's tempest and all this is happening and Jesus is fast asleep. Now, the reason Jonah is sleeping and Jesus is sleeping, I think are completely vastly different, right? I think Jonah is sleeping. One, he probably didn't know how bad it is. And he's thinking, you know, I'm just going to go down and I'm just going to catch a few winks. And hopefully when I wake up, this will all be over. He's actually trying to avoid the situation. I think he's trying to, to avoid the presence of God. He's trying to avoid uh, any implication there. And yet the captain, they're desperate. So he comes down and he's like, why aren't you calling out to your God? Like everyone's tried their gods and they didn't work. Maybe your God would work. In verse seven, it says, they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and what, of what people are you? And he said to them, I am Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. And it's like, Okay, Jonah, blah, 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 that you didn't even answer their questions. Um, they said, what is your occupation? Where do you come from? What are your country? And he basically says, I'm a Hebrew, fear the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then they said to him, what shall we do for you that the sea may grow quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. In verse 12, Jonah says, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now, um, 
it's really interesting because you can read this and on one hand it looks like wow look at how sacrificial jonah is being these men are desperate and and it looks like everyone's going to die and jonah's like you know i know this is because of me just throw me in the sea now on, on the surface that might seem very sacrificial or altruistic but as we go into the book more we realize that this is just another way for Jonah to avoid God's call on his life. In other words, <clears throat> Jonah is basically saying, I would rather die than fulfill this calling that God has given me. I would rather die than preach repentance to the Ninevites. So throw me in the ocean, kill two birds with one stone. Maybe the storm will stop because God's upset with me and I don't have to go to Nineveh. In verse 13, nevertheless, or but, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. One of the things that's interesting in Jonah as well is that the people who are supposed to be cold and hard-hearted are actually compassionate and, and gracious, and the people who are supposed to be gracious and compassionate are cold and hard-hearted. So notice Jonah has just told these guys, throw me into the sea and this will all be over. And they try not to. They said the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. They did everything they could to actually save Jonah. Last resort, verse 14. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life or lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now that is incredible. So Jonah, even, even as he is, is ditching his duty as a prophet, even as he is trying to get away from preaching repentance to the Ninevites, what we see here is, is an is a outbreak of revival among these soldiers. Remember, the story started with each man calling out to his own God. Because of the storm and because of the, the story of Jonah, these sailors now have become followers of Yahweh. They are sacrificing to Yahweh. They're calling out upon Yahweh. They have been converted in spite of Jonah, not because of him. Look at verse 17 is the last but here. It says, and, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And that could also be but, but the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, the, what is the moral here um, with Jonah being swallowed by this fish after doing everything, trying to be thrown into the sea? Um, the last thing he would expect would be to swallow, be swallowed by a fish. And the, the, the moral of the story is just this, is that, that no matter how big your butt is, God's butt is always bigger. You say, but God, I don't want to do this. But God, I can't do that. But God, I could never be forgiven. But God, but God, but God. And God instead says, no, I have a different plan. In, in other words, jo Jonah's, it's a, but Jonah ran away from the Lord, but God had plans for Jonah. And so in spite of Jonah trying to flee, God swallowed, had him swallowed up, appointed a great fish to swallow him up. And so I know some of you are thinking, okay, is this real? What about this fish? Is it, is it, you know, what about the fish? Did it really happen? And I'm not going to talk about that this morning. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it. If you want a deep historical scientific discussion, I'm going to include in the discussion section, a link to a journal article from the Princeton Theological Review entitled, um, the sign of the prophet Jonah and its modern confirmations. 
And that was written in 1927. And it's still sort of a classic. People still read it. And it basically talks about scientific stuff. It talks about even in 1891, how actually a man was swallowed by a sperm whale. He was a whaling uh, on a whaling ship. And two days later, someone, they killed the whale and they cut it open and the man fell out and he was alive. So take that for what it's worth. It could happen. Um, on the other hand, for our purposes today, I think it's helpful just to know this, that Jesus thought this story was real. The, the, you know, scientific questions aside and all the stuff when you think was this story historic was it real jesus thought it was real he taught it as real in fact jesus said that this story and what happens in the story is the primary sign of to, to the jews of his day that he was the messiah let me read to you matthew chapter 12 when you know basically jews are coming to him and they're saying will you show us a sign how do we really know you are who you say you are and jesus says this in verse 38, it says, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus basically says, A, it happened, but the sign you look for, you're not going to get another one. Because the sign that you're going to, that has been given is the sign of Jonah, that just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights and came out alive, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights and come out alive. In other words, his resurrection is going to be the great sign to the truthfulness of who he is. And also the second thing he points out is that the men of Nineveh will stand in judgment of you. Because Jonah preached repentance and they repented and here one greater than Jonah is preaching repentance and you scorn him. In fact, they, they don't know they will actually crucify him, not repentance at all. So that's what Jesus believed. Um, and so that leads us to the, the next part of this story, which is basically the prayer. I'm going to skip the prayer part because what happens in the prayer I'm pretty cynical about Jonah. When you look at this prayer, there's a lot of sort of religious mumbo jumbo. And I don't mean that to denigrate it. It basically, Jonah says a lot of good things about God. He thanks God for his deliverance. But Jonah never in this prayer repents. He never says, God, you know, I can't believe that I tried to run from you and here you've saved me anyhow. He just sort of is saying like these sort of liturgical prayers that you would expect a religious person to say. And so by the time you get to the end of this prayer, um, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And verse 10, it, it says, and Jonah, in chapter 2, verse 10, it says, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, imagine Jonah's surprise that at what comes next, in that he's been in the belly of the whale, and he's saying all the things he thinks God wants to hear. And the last thing he says is salvation belongs to the Lord. And the fish vomits him on the shore. And the first thing that comes out of that, that he hears is from God saying, yeah, remember that whole salvation comes from the Lord thing? 
Yeah. So what I need you to do is actually what I asked you to do before and to go to Nineveh. You know, we had a saying in the army, my girls have heard this once or twice before, um, that there's never time to do something right the first time, but there's always time to do it right the second time. That's what God is basically saying to him here. Notice he says, verse three, chapter three, verse one, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it the message that I give you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. I can only imagine in Jonah's head is like, come on. It, after this whole ordeal, the, what's the last thing you want to do is to now travel 500 miles to preach repentance and grace and mercy to your worst enemies. And we know, ultimately, we know that's exactly what was going on in Jonah's mind. That, that he went, but he went probably with his teeth gritted. He went not happy at all. Notice what it says in verse 3, it says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey in breadth. And now remember I told you this, the second point was about predictable repentance and unpredictable repentance. First thing we actually see is unpredictable repentance. So Jonah in verse 4 began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And in Hebrew, that sermon is five words long. And notice it says almost nothing. In 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. You get the feeling that Jonah's heart is not really in it. This city is maybe 60 square miles, and he is just going around saying, you know, 40 days, and yet, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You know, the joke also might be on him. You know, most commentators believe that Jonah, this book, is sort of an ancient form of satire. And the word overthrown there can also mean uh, transformed. There's a lot of play on words in this book. And so what Jonah, in his mind, he's saying 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's what he hopes. And yet what he, people might be hearing is 40 days and Nineveh might be transformed. And that's exactly what happens. Notice their response. Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word, of the, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation by publish, and published through Nineveh, By decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Wow, that is a very unpredictable response to Jonah's sermon. First of all, I had not much information. Second of all, they were, they were enemies of Israel. And here comes one of Israel's prophets saying, 40 days and your city will be overthrown. And a revival breaks out. The whole city repents. And then the king hears about it. And the king decrees. And not only does the king tear his clothes and repent and proclaim a fast, the king says, not only am I going to repent, and not only the people are going to repent, even the cows are going to repent in Nineveh. That's how serious we are about our repentance and getting right with the Lord. And verse 9, I love verse 9. He says, who knows? God may 
turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. That's completely unpredictable. Now, what is predictable is God's repentance. Notice what verse 10 says. Verse 10 says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. In Hebrew, that's repented. God repented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. He did not do it. In other words, um, God's predictable response to repentance is grace and mercy. And again, we know that response is predictable. Jonah knew that response is predictable, which is why he gets so upset at Nineveh's repentance. He knows that if Nineveh repents, it's over, at least in his, if he wants punishment for his enemies, because God is going to be gracious. God is going to. So God, it says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from the reboy, God repented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, some people try and get really deep in the weeds here and say, can God change his mind? The, the author here is giving us a perspective that we as humans can understand. God said, if you, if you don't turn from your sins, um, you will be judged for them. And they turned from their sins. And he says, okay, so you're not going to be judged for them. And the same is true with us and the gospel. We call out to everyone and we say, um, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you don't turn from your sins, God will judge you for your sins. But if you do turn to your, from your sins, if you do put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you do um, embrace him as the one who has died for your sins, God changes his mind. Changes his mind. In other words, he will forgive. And that made Jonah angry. Man, it, that, that, this part of the story that's coming next is just so wild. Listen to, as, as we get into sort of the existential question here, what, how chapter four. So God repents. He does not judge Nineveh. And in verse chapter one, chapter four, verse one says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. Think about that for a second. Jonah, imagine like being called to plant a church. So let's say if it's me, let's say some of the, the, the EPC said, Tommy, we want you to plant a church in Spokane, Washington or Huntsville, Alabama. And we move to Spokane and we plant a church in Spokane. And within 40 days, the whole city of Spokane has experienced this religious revival. And they have come and they, are, they all have joined um, New Hope Spokane people would say, wow, that is pretty successful. That's pretty like hashtag blessed, right? That, that, that guy must be it. And frankly, I would be, or at least I'd feel that way. Jonah is the only successful prophet in the whole Old Testament. I mean, all the prophets, when you think of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all of them basically give these prophecies and no one listens. Or if they do listen, they get angry at them. Jonah, this the, the sort of anti-prophet, he goes and preaches a five-word sermon, and the whole city repents, and Jonah is angry. Crazy. But we find out exactly why he is angry in these next verses. Verse 2, it says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is, it not, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That, it, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew 
that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. <laughs> Jonah is angry because God forgave his enemies. Not God's enemies. I mean, all people are naturally God's enemies, but God forgave Jonah's enemies. Remember the question I asked you at the beginning? How would you feel if, if, if God forgave even your worst enemies? How hard would that be for you to believe? That's what Jonah is grappling with here. And in fact, he, he quotes the words of Exodus chapter 34, 6. Jonah was a prophet. He knew the Bible and he knew that God was gracious and merciful to whoever would repent. And that made him upset. Not because he couldn't change who God was, but he was upset that the Ninevites repented and, and they would experience forgiveness. He said, that's why I got on the ship to Tarshish. I don't want these people to be forgiven. I wanted them to get what they deserve. And, you know, how does God respond to him? He responds, verse four, and I would love to think of God being like, all right, drama queen, <laughs> chapter, all right, drama queen, the Lord said, uh, do you do well to be angry? Or in other words, what do you have to be angry about, Jonah? Like you have been, you've experienced grace, you've experienced mercy, you have experienced salvation. And why would you be angry that someone else could experience that? Jonah doesn't even answer him. Verse five, he said, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of the city. So Jonah hasn't given up on the fact that God may still judge Nineveh. I mean, think about this. He has preached, there's been this great revival in the whole city. And in the ancient Near East, um, hospitality w was central and hospitality toward religious figures was big. And I would imagine hospitality toward the prophet who had brought revival to your city would be enormous. Instead, Jonah goes off by himself to have his little pity party up on a hill so he can look down and hopefully in the off chance that maybe their repentance wasn't true enough and maybe God was going to still judge them. Verse six, now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up to cover Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the plant came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So, See what's going on. So the, apparently Jonah wasn't even that great at building a booth because it was really sunny. So God appoints this plant that grows and provides shade. And then a worm comes and eats the plant and the shade goes away. And Jonah's response to that is, I would just rather die than have to sit here in the sun and watch these people experience grace and forgiveness. And But God says in verse 9, he says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He says, you're upset because the plant withered away. That's like, that's got you to the point of saying, oh, I want to die. I'm a drama queen. No. And Jonah says, and he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. <laughs> okay, Jonah, like, how is God going to respond to that? Well, God's going to bottom line him. And in the context of bottom lining him, he raises this great existential question for us, I believe. 
he says, God responds to Jonah's drama in verse 10. He says, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there, there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. I think by 120,000 persons who don't know the right from the left, he's talking about children. So how many adults? We don't even know. Millions. And he's like, so you, you're upset about the plan. Should I not be more concerned about this great city full of people, full of children, full of human beings who are lost? They are just flat out lost, Jonah. And so the question, the existential question at the end of this book that we have to answer is this, is basically what is God really like? What is he really like? Is God really big enough? Is he really merciful enough to forgive his enemies? And is he really of such a, such a nature that not only does he forgive his enemies, but he forgives my enemies? In, in, in other words, is his grace big enough that, that not only can he forgive me, but he can forgive those who have offended me so that all of us can be in one family. You see, Jonah's answer shows he doesn't really get it. You, you see, Jonah's answer shows that he doesn't understand his own need of mercy and grace and forgiveness. You see, that's one of the things we learn in the New Testament in several places, that if you are unable to forgive someone else, that's a really good sign that you yourself have not been forgiven. And so if you are unable to forgive someone else, or you look at other people and think, man, I hope something bad happens to them, you know, or, or you can't stand Trump supporters, or you can't stand Biden supporters, or you can't stand this, or you can't stand that, you probably, like Jonah, ought to check yourself. You should check your heart. You see, because that spirit, um, this spirit of Jonah, if you will, pops up all over the New Testament. And you're going to be surprised, I think, when I start telling you the places where it pops up, because it's all over the place. So where, do, where does Jonah pop up in the New Testament? Jonah pops up in the New Testament in the store in Luke 18, in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember, Jesus pointed out two men praying in the temple. One was a Pharisee, one was a tax collector. And the, the tax collector, you know, the, the, the dregs of society, he basically said, I am unworthy. Lord, have mercy on me. That was his prayer. How did the Pharisee pray? Basically, Lord, thank you. I'm not like him. I pray, pay my tithes. I pray three times a day. I do everything I'm supposed to do. And most of all, I'm better than he is. Right? That, that's Jonah's attitude. We also see Jonah's attitude come up in, in Matthew 18. Remember Matthew 18 is the, the parable, the unforgiving servant. The, the servant is forgiven much. He's forgiven this incredibly huge debt. And then as soon as he goes out from this master's presence, he begins to exact a very small debt from someone who owes him. And it shows he doesn't get it. And he's cast into outer darkness and gnashing of teeth. That's Jonah. Jonah is the unforgiving servant. He does not get it. He, does, he doesn't realize that he has been forgiven. He doesn't realize that he needs grace. How often are you and I like that? How often are you and I like the unforgiving servant? He's like the, Jonah's also like the, the laborer in the vineyards in Matthew chapter 20. Remember, the, there's a, the 
Jesus tells the story of a man who went out in the vineyard and he had workers and he hired people at the beginning of the day and he said, I'll pay you this much. And he hired people during the day and the very end of the day, he hired people and paid them the same amount as the people who came in the morning and the people who came in the morning were upset. And remember the master said, I can pay whoever I want, what I want, when I want. It's all about grace. And yet they were angry. Jonah is angry. He's been a prophet. He's been doing the right things. He's been in Israel his whole life. And who are these interlopers, these Ninevites, who would also be forgiven? They're the bad people. Maybe more than any other story that shows us Jonah in the New Testament is the, the parable of the prodigal son with the elder brother. Remember the prodigal goes away and, and spends his, his father's inheritance and wayward living and he comes back and the father runs to receive him and he, he throws a party for him, kills the fatted calf, puts a ring on his finger and robes and the elder brother is angry. He's upset. Why? Not because the father has been gracious to, to him, but the, the father's been gracious to someone who doesn't deserve it. And the whole point is, elder brother, you don't deserve it either. And yet he thinks he does. How often are we like that? You see, what Jonah does is really point us to all of those kinds of stories in many ways. And has us ask ourselves, what is God really like? Is God big enough to forgive my enemies? Is God big enough to forgive his enemies? And the good news, if you answer correctly, is if, if he's big enough to forgive them, then that means he's also big enough to forgive me, that my sins have been forgiven. And more and more, I can be transformed into someone who is a forgiving person, unlike Jonah. You see, we don't, we're left at the end of this story in much the same way we're left at the end of the parable of the prodigal son with this question of, are you going to come into the party or not? Are you going to enter in and, and enjoy my grace with all the rest of these sinners, or are you not going to? You know, let me finish um, by reading the, the end of the story in the Jesus Storybook Bible, because Jonah doesn't just point us to all these, the parable of the prodigal son and the laborers in the vineyard. It also, of course, points us to Jesus. Let me read that to you. And so it says, the people of Nineveh listened to Jonah and they started loving God. They learned to do what God said and stopped running away from him, just like Jonah. Many years later, God was going to send another messenger with the same wonderful message. Like Jonah, he would spend three days in utter darkness. But this messenger would be God's own son. He would be called the word because he himself would be God's message. God's message translated into our own language. Everything God wanted to say to the whole world in a person. And if that's not an Advent message, I don't know what is. You think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much uh, for your grace and your mercy toward us. I pray that that would work itself out in our lives and in our attitude uh, toward those who have harmed us or offended us. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. Now, typically at this point in the service, we would have a doxology and we would re receive an offering. Or now that we're in sort of pandemic mode, we would have a, a basket at the back of the service. Either way, um, I always like to take this opportunity to say, if you're interested in giving to the Ministry of New Hope, you can find that information in the description. But most of you who are watching, I assume, are supporting us. And so I thank you so much for that. I thought I would end this morning um, with a profession of faith from the Westminster Larger Catechism, number 33. And the, it asks this question. It says, how is Christ a prophet? Answer, 
As a prophet, Christ reveals the complete will of God to his church about everything for the church's edification and salvation. He does this throughout the ages in different ways by means of his spirit and word. Amen and amen. Let me send you from this virtual place with this word of God from the prophet Zephaniah saying the word, the Lord your God is with you. The Lord your God is a mighty and victorious warrior. The Lord your God will quiet you with his love and the Lord your God shouts over you with great shouts of joy. Amen and amen. Have a great week.